You're listening to the Finding Christ in the Old Testament series, preaching by Pastor Rick Dressler at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. Take your Bibles this morning, if you would, and find your way to 2 Samuel this morning. And look, if you would, at verse number 1 this morning. I'm going to read this morning the whole chapter, okay? And, and that, while I read the chapter, I don't want you to sort of doze off or zone out. I want you to listen. I want you to pay attention. There will be a number of names in this chapter that you're familiar with. There will be others that you're not familiar with and maybe you could not even pronounce, okay? And I'm not as concerned about those names unless you're looking for a name of a child in the future. You could use, I'm sure, some of these names. They'd be absolutely fascinating. But there's a storyline here in chapter 3, and you'll find as you look at the chapter, as you read the chapter, there are names that, are, that, that come up over and over again, and there are words that come up over and over again. And so to the best of our ability this morning as we read through this, I do want you to listen. I want you to see the names that are here. The writer has an intention for us. There's something he wants to get across this morning, and I, and I hope to see it as we read this morning. So... First uh, Samuel, Second Samuel, rather, chapter three, starting at verse number one. Now there was long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, but David waxed stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul waxed weaker and weaker. Now to David were born sons were born in Hebron, and his firstborn was Amnon of Ahinam, the Jezreelitess, and his second Kiliab of Abigail, the wife of Nabal, the Carmelite, and the third, Absalom, the son of Maacah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur, and the fourth, Adonijah, the son of Haggith, and the fifth, Shephatiah, the son of Abital, and the sixth, Ithream, by Eglah, David's wife. These were born to David in Hebron. And it came to pass, while there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, that Abner made himself strong for the house of Saul. And Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, Wherefore hast thou gone into my father's concubine? Then was Abner very wroth for the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head, which against Judah do show kindness this day unto the house of Saul thy father? to his brethren, and to his friends, and have not delivered thee into the hand of David, that thou chargest me today with a fault concerning this woman? So do God to Abner, and more also except, as the Lord has sworn to David, even so I do to him, to translate the kingdom from the house of Saul, and to set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah, from Dan even to Beersheba. And he, Ishbosheth could not answer Abner a word again, because he feared him. And Abner sent messengers to David on his behalf, saying, Whose is the land? Also, make thy league with me, and behold, my hand shall be with thee to bring about all Israel with thee. And he said, Well, I will make a league with thee. But one thing I require of thee, that is, thou shalt not see my face, except thou first bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when thou comest to see my face. And David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Deliver me, my wife, Michael, which I espoused to me, 
for a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband, even from Paltiel, the son of Laish. And her husband went with her along weeping behind her to Bahum. Then said Abner unto him, Go, return. And he returned. And Abner had communication with the elders of Israel, saying, You sought for David in times past to be king over you. Now then do it. For the Lord has spoken of David, saying, By the hand of my servant David I will save my people Israel out of the hand of the Philistines and out of the hand of all their enemies. And Abner also spake to the sons of Benjamin. And Abner went also to speak in the ears of David in Hebron all that seemed good to Israel and that seemed good to the whole house of Benjamin. So Abner came to David, to Hebron, and 20 men with him. And David made Abner and the men that were with him a feast. And Abner said to David, I will arise and go and will gather all Israel unto my lord the king, that they may make a league with thee, and that thou mayest reign over all that thine heart desires. And David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. And behold, the servants of David and Joab came from pursuing a troop and brought in a great spoil with them. But Abner was not with David in Hebron, for he had sent him away, and he was gone in peace. When Joab and all the hosts that was with him were come, they told Joab, saying, Abner the son of Ner came to the king, and he has sent him away, and he has gone in peace. Then Joab came to the king and said, What hast thou done? Behold, Abner came unto thee. Why is it that thou hast sent him away, and he is quite gone? Thou knowest, Abner the son of Ner, that he came to deceive thee, and to know thy going out and thy coming in, and to know all that thou doest. And when Joab was come out from David, he sent messengers after Abner, which brought him again from the well of Sirah. But David knew it not. And when Abner was returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside in the gate to speak with him quietly and smote him there under the fifth rib that he died for the blood of Asahel, his brother. And afterward, when David heard it, he said, I and my kingdom are guiltless before the Lord forever from the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. Let it rest on the head of Joab and on all his father's house, and let there not fail from the house of Joab one that hath an issue or that is a leper, or that leaneth on a staff, or that falleth on the sword, or that lacketh bread. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, slew Abner because he had slain his brother, Asahel, at Gibeon in the battle. And David said to Joab and to all the people that were with him, Rent your clothes and gird you with sackcloth and mourn before Abner. And King David himself followed the bier. And they buried Abner in Hebron, and the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner, and all the people wept. And the king lamented over Abner and said, Died Abner as a fool dieth. Thy hands were not bound, nor thy feet put into fetters. As a man falleth before wicked men, so fellest thou. And all the people wept again over him. And when all the people came to cause David to eat meat while, he was, while it was yet day, David swore, swore saying, so do um, God to me, and more also, if I taste bread or aught else, till the sun be down. And all the people took notice of it. And it pleased them, as whatsoever the king did pleased all the people. For all the people and all Israel understood that that day 
it was not of the king to slay Abner, the son of Ner. And the king said unto his servants, Know ye not that there is a prince and a great man fallen this day in Israel? And I am this day weak, though anointed king. And these men, the sons of Zeruiah, be too hard for me. The Lord shall reward the doer of evil according to his wickedness. This is the word of the Lord. And we pray this morning that we'll be able to see the eternal perspective from the pages of God's word. 2 Samuel chapter 3 is a chapter that's fraught with tragedy. It's a drama in itself. And as we work our way through this chapter, I mean, it could be a 48 hours show as we see what transpires here. And what I'd like to do this morning is take the failure of three men and quickly point those out. And then look at two protagonists in this story and try to glean from what we've read the purpose of this chapter in in 2 Samuel chapter 3. So, the failure of three men, the first failure, is that of David. Of David. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, the author of 2 Samuel is telling us about David's kingdom becoming stronger and stronger and Saul's kingdom becoming weaker and weaker. And remember, when we're in Old Testament narrative, the writer is not as concerned about telling you what you ought to do or how to feel about something. It's descriptive. What he's doing is telling you the facts. This is what has happened or is happening. He is not condemning it. He's not condoning it. He's just making the point that David is waxing stronger and stronger. And here's how David is doing it. He's increasing his sons. Now, for you and I, that may not be a big deal, but if you're looking for a dynasty and a kingdom to last and to continue, you need sons. And so David is having son after son after son, which is not a bad thing. Be fruitful and multiply. The problem is they all have different mothers. This is not God's plan. This is not God's intention. It's one man, one woman for life. And yet David, knowing that the kingdom is near, the United Kingdom is close, he begins to multiply sons. And not only that, he is making political alliances. You may not see it from the text right away, but he marries a woman whose father is king in Geshur. Geshur is in the north. David is in the south. Solomon's kingdom is in the middle. And what he's just made is the David sandwich. Right? Now he has an ally in the north. He's starting to squeeze the kingdom of Saul. Where David has failed here is in his faith. What David is trusting is himself. This is David's strategy to increase his strength. This is not God's strategy. And if you doubt that this is not a good idea, think of the names of the sons that were mentioned. Amnon. Absalom, Adonijah, you know from your Bible time that two of those boys are killed by their own brother and one is killed by his cousin, Joab. The house is a mess. And this was David's idea. Listen, uh, the old former president, U.S. President Bush, used to say strategery. I don't think it's a real word, but he would say it. This is my strategery. And this is David's strategy. 
He's going to make himself strong. He's going to make it work out. Now, I know this morning that none of us here would ever try to step ahead of God and make things work by making them work. We would never try to manipulate a person or a situation to get our way. We would never say a prayer request so hopefully the most, most wealthiest person in our church heard it and gave me the money I needed. We would never do that. But David does. This is a failure to trust the God of heaven. This is David's plan. And we will see that this is a huge, huge mistake. David's failure. Here's the second failure, the second man, is Ishbosheth. His failure is not so much faith, his failure is frailty. He is a weak man. Now listen to me. We live in a world that's confused today. We, we have a world today now that doesn't want us to use pronouns, he and she, because it might offend someone. Okay. Um, listen to me. It's okay to be a man if God has made you a man. It's okay to be a woman if he's made you a woman. He and she is perfectly fine. Don't get messed up in the confusion of our world today. And we live in a crazy world. And the church has gone crazy itself. And our idea of manlyhood has somewhat been skewed as well. Some of us this morning, as we think of, well, he's a man's man. Well, what does that mean? He's, he's six foot four, 280 pounds. Yeah, Adrian, I saw your wife just hit you. <laughs> I'm going to have you stand up here, all right? I kill my own food, I bench 400, I'm mean as a snake, I'll punch you in the throat if you look at me wrong. That's a man's man. Listen, some of those things are not wrong. It's okay if you're six foot four and, and that weight and you're benching, and sometimes people need to be punched in the throat. But, um, but if that's our concept, if this is a man, it's not a man. That's not, that's not what what is entailed in the making of a man. And then the church goes the other way, and we have men who are embarrassed to be men, who stand for nothing, who say nothing. They, they are just sort of aloof to everything that's happening. They're just existing. Like Nero, who fiddled as Rome burned. Too many of our men in Christianity are fiddling. or playing Xbox. or watching TV. We're getting caught in a bunch of games while their families, while their churches are a mess. Listen, I know this is not going to sound politically correct, and I'm really not sorry that it doesn't. But a weak man is pathetic. That's not how God designed you. And here is Ishbosheth. He is the king. And yet he is drawing strength from Abner, and he can't even answer Abner again because he's terrified of Listen, I don't care this morning if you like hunting or you like to play chess. doesn't matter. I don't care if you're loud and obnoxious or you're quiet and easygoing. It doesn't matter. But being a man means being strong as a man, which means I lead, I protect, I defend, and I pour myself, I wring myself out for the good of others. 
my family, my church, my neighbors. I give of myself. And the fault of Ishbosheth here is he is frail, he is weak, he is anemic, and he's not useful for anything or anyone. Maybe you're here this morning and say, Rick, you know what? No one ever taught me how to be a man. And I get it. Some of us didn't have men in our lives, or the men in our lives weren't worth following, or they just took off. I understand. But listen to me. This morning, you are in a church, which is the pillar and ground of the truth. And every time someone stands behind this pulpit, they will always point you to the perfect man, the God-man, Christ Jesus, as our example. And we follow him who gave himself, who poured himself out. He was wrung out. He protected. He defended. He cared. He was loving. He was kind. He was a man. And we look to him. Not only that, you are in a church by God's grace that we have men here who have led well. They have shepherded well. They have loved. They have protected. They have given of their lives. You can look to them. And this morning, I encourage you look at the failure of Ishbosheth. Repent of our frailness and be a man. I'm not telling you to go out and buy a shotgun and go kill something this afternoon. That's not what I'm saying. Unless you want to, that's fine. If it's season, that's good. If it's not, don't. But what I'm telling you is understand that a frail, man who is just hands off. I don't want to rock the boat. Don't want to do anything. Don't want to make anybody upset. I'm just going to let the family and my friends and everybody just do what they want to do. That's not being a man. It's the failure of Ishbosheth, his frailty. And here's the third man we'll look at, and that is Saul. Saul. See, I didn't see much of Saul. I know it's his kingdom, but how did Saul fail? There's a tragic story in here. I don't know if you got it, but the story of Michael, Saul's daughter, you know that Ishbosheth is her brother. And, and what's happened is now David says, I want her back. She was my wife, my first wife. And so the, the picture shows us her being dragged out of her home, probably married now for maybe 10 years, and her husband weeping behind her. Listen, when the king, the monarch, says, you're going to David, the husband has nothing to do except weep until he gets to Jerusalem, and then someone says, listen, pal, quit crying, go home. It's tragic. I mean, tragic. Could you imagine? Somebody thinking, yeah, I wish they'd take my wife. I wouldn't be crying. Just go. Take her. Okay? But if you love her, right, it's, it's, it's kind of upsetting. Right? It's terrible. Some of you are going to be in trouble today, real trouble. You just, you're in trouble. You're already in trouble. You might as well just, it's tragic. And can I tell you something? This was Saul's fault. This was Saul's fault because when he was jealous of David, he sent some guys to his home where, where Michael was and David was there and he wanted them to execute David. So Michael saves his life. He escapes out. He's on the run. He's a fugitive. And when he leaves, Saul is the one that takes Michael and gives her to another man. This is Saul's doing. And so, when it's all said and done, the failure here is Saul's, and what we see here is his fruit. His fruit. 
these consequences for this poor man who's weeping, following his wife, a broken home, a broken relationship, it all stems from Saul's decision. Listen to me this morning. You are free. I am free to make decisions and choices. We do it all the time. You're not free of the consequences of those choices. And for some of us, the consequences last after we're gone and hurt innocent people. And so, this morning, if you choose, you can click on that page. You, you can go to that site. That's your choice. You can reconnect with that girl from high school that you had a crush on or that guy that was your first love, you can do that. You can throw caution to the wind. You can go out and party on the weekend. But listen to me, your choices and my choices have consequences and sometimes they last after we are gone and often hurt innocent people. The failure of Saul and his consequences. Now here were just three men in the text, and the Bible reminds us that these stories are an example for us to learn from. Listen to me. Life is too short to make all the mistakes yourself. Let some other idiot make the mistake, and you learn from it. You watch the lives of these men. You watch the lives of others. These examples are for us to see and to avoid. And we thank God for that truth. But I, I want to show you, Lord willing now, the main point of this passage as we've read through. Great examples here. But, but the main point is this, from chapter 3, and I think from, from the whole book of 2 Samuel. That no matter what the adversity, no matter what the conflict, no matter who is scheming or conniving, God's kingdom will march on. That's the whole book of 2 Samuel. That God's plan and his kingdom will march on. No matter the conflict, no matter who's scheming, no matter who's conniving, no matter what um, adversity is facing it, God's kingdom marches on. And this is so apropos to us today. Can I tell you something? The storm clouds are gathering and the atmosphere is changing for the believer on this continent. And if you don't think so, you better get out from your rock and look at the news. The world's changing. And you're going to see more and more adversity and hatred toward the kingdom of God and his people. But I want you to take heart, and this is, this is the story of Samuel, that it doesn't matter the adversity, it doesn't matter the conflict, that God's kingdom will march on, and there is coming a day when all the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Hey, I got some good news for you. Christian, we win. I think that's worth an amen, but that's just me. Let me try again. Christian, we win. Yeah, that's good. We do win. And the truth is, God's kingdom cannot and will not be stopped, no matter the adversity that it faces. Now listen, in this story, which is interesting to me, the, the, the main protagonist here, Abner and Joab. Two different guys from two different places, 
But I have to tell you something, as we watch the story unfold, and we look at the trajectory of their life, and we understand who they are, these two men are cut from the same cloth. And when we look at their lives, for both Abner and Joab, the truth is, Abner cares about Abner. And Joab cares about Joab. They're not concerned with God's kingdom. They're concerned with building their own kingdom. Here is Abner, and he's made himself strong. The Bible tells us in that chapter. He's making himself strong. And then there's this allegation from Ishbosheth, the weak man, who says, Hey, are you messing with my father's concubine? And we don't know if this is true or not. The Bible doesn't tell us if he was actually doing this. But I have to guess, because Ishbosheth was so weak that maybe something was here. But Abner is incensed at this statement because. Going after the king's concubine meant that you thought you were next in line for the kingdom. It was an act of treason. It was saying, I deserve to be the next king, which really troubled Ishbosheth. And, and Abner understands this because he's so upset. He says, Am I a dog's head? I know some of you pet lovers out there are like, Well, that's not a bad idea, dog's head. I, I like my, my, what is that, Labradoodle? Cockapoodle? I don't know. I, I love my, a dog's head is a cool thing. Not in Bible days. Let me remind you, a dog was an unclean animal. It was a scavenger. It ate its own vomit, which some things don't change. And to be called a dog or dog's head was the biggest uh, insult you could be called. You're a dog. And I know some of you cat lovers out there, you're nice and smug now because we have cats. Yeah, cats are just as filthy. But they have a litter box. You know what they do in a litter box? They leave your litter box and then jump on your counter and on your bed and on your face, all right? What's, the only pet to get it, I think, would be a chicken. Chickens are good. They stay outside and they produce eggs. But I digress. Where are we at? Okay. Abner, making himself strong, manipulates all the tribes. He is the power broker in the deal. He's the one saying, listen, hey, Benjamin, hey, Israel, you wanted to have David. Let me broker a deal. I don't want to lose my power. He doesn't. He's taking care of his kingdom. Joab is David's nephew. And Joab is too valuable for David to punish. And so Abner comes, and David has a peace treaty with him. It'd be interesting to know how many times peace is mentioned in those few verses where it talks about it. Peace, peace, peace. And the idea is Abner's safe because he's got a peace treaty with the king. And Joab comes back. He's like, what are you doing, man? Like, I killed my brother. Why is he gone? And so then Joab goes behind the king's back and says, Abner, you've got to come home back here to Hebron. David forgot to tell you something. And Abner is, has no idea. He believes he's under a peace treaty. And so he comes back, and Joab and his brother take him behind the gates of the city, all these different compartments, and they kill him in Hebron. Now, that might not mean much to you either, Hebron, but do you know that God gave the Israelites these cities of refuge? where if you accidentally killed someone by manslaughter, it was an accident, you could flee to one of these cities, and the elders would hear your case. And if you were innocent, then you were allowed to live, and the family that was grieving or upset could not come after you. Hebron was one of those cities. It was a city of refuge. And the fact is, Abner did kill Asahel. He killed him in battle, and it was self-defense. This does not apply for him. And yet Joab kills him 
in this city. Ultimately, their actions were about them. You can call it valor, you can call it honor, but the truth is the only kingdom they were concerned about was not David's and not God's. It was theirs. They were self-promoting, and they're all about self-preservation. And that was it. They were obsessed with their own kingdoms. Donald Barnhouse tells a story of a, a little boy who was skating on the ice with his skates, and he had a buddy there. And as they were skating, the buddy fell through the, the pond, and immediately the young man jumped in and rescued his friend. The, the, the people there were amazed, accolade upon accolade. And finally, a reporter came to this young man and said, listen, how was it that you were so brave that you had to rescue your friend from the pond without missing a beat? The young man said, I had to. He was wearing my skates. Right? Wearing my skates. Can I tell you something this morning? Many of us this morning, we have the spirit of Joab, the spirit of Abner, We're not concerned about God's kingdom. We're worried about building our own. And the things we do, the bottom line is, it's all about our skates. Our skates. And we never once think about the kingdom of God. Let me read something for you this morning from Revelation to help us just sort of set the stage as we close out with a few thoughts this morning. Revelation chapter 5. And and here is a a reminder for all of us this morning who are followers of Christ. Revelation chapter 5 and verse number 9 this morning. He says, And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain. And of course, he's talking here about Jesus Christ. For thou um, wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood, out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. So listen, believer, this morning, if you are saved, if you are born again, if you have been saved from the wrath to come, if you know Christ is your Savior, um, he reminds us that that took place because Jesus Christ shed his blood for you. He was innocent. He was perfect. And yet on the cross of Calvary, God's wrath was poured out on his head The death we deserved, he took. Sin was punished on Calvary for you and for me. Christ absorbed it. He absorbed all of it. And he saved us from the marketplace of sin. I am no longer bound for hell. I am no longer a slave to sin. I am free. I have been redeemed, bought back by Jesus Christ. Listen to me. It does not happen because you go to church. It doesn't happen because you're a good person. It doesn't happen because you were sprinkled or baptized. It doesn't happen because you've been doing the best you can do in your community. It happens when we repent and believe in Christ. He is the only way of salvation. And you can be a member of a Baptist church and split hell wide open if you've never been redeemed by the blood of Christ. And so he reminds us, you have been redeemed from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And look at verse number 10. And he has made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. It's a reminder that God didn't save you just to save you. He saved you for a purpose. He saved you for a reason. It was to bring him glory and not to build our own kingdoms, 
but to build his. And I have to tell you, as I was looking at the text this week, read over several times, thinking about my own life, and the fact is many times the only filter I ever have about everything I do is how this affects me. How does this ministry affect me? This job, this money, this conflict, this pain, this suffering, how does this affect me? Will I be recognized? Will I be appreciated? Will I be rewarded? Will I be promoted? Will I be applauded? Will I come out on top? Will I win the argument? Will I keep my power? Will I have the upper hand? What about my kingdom? And the truth is, that thought is foolishness for the believer because all the kingdoms, yours and mine, will someday be the kingdom of our Christ, our Lord, and he will reign, and we will reign with him. And for so many of us in this world that we live today, it is all about our kingdom. And we never think of eternity. I have an illustration I'm going to use this morning. I've used it in the past. It's not mine, so I can't take credit for it. But I think it helps us understand uh, what we're talking about this morning. Uh, Hannah, could you help me this morning? I just wanted to show off your dress today. It looks so nice. <laughs> all right. Would you just take this and just walk to the back of the church, okay? And let it out as you go, okay? And then you can sit down once you get back there. But you've seen this. This is from Francis Chan. This is not my illustration at all. But I think it helps us think through some things this morning. Let, let this, this cord represent um, eternity, if you would. Okay? Man is born. We, we are born to live. But we will never die. We'll spend eternity in one of two places. Go ahead, Hannah. All the way to the back. Just, there we go. And then just, you're done. Thank you. You can come back and sit down. Great job, Hannah. I knew you could do it. Okay? And let's just say, if you can imagine this rope going from here to there, if we just let it keep on going, I mean, just let it go. We'll head south, we'll cross Lake Erie, it'll hit Cleveland. Same rope, still going. Go from Cleveland, hits Florida. Past Florida, hits Columbia. Go past Columbia, hits Argentina, the Falkland Islands. Go down to Antarctica, and it just goes off the planet. Imagine. Okay. That's eternity. And it, it keeps on going from vanishing point to vanishing point. It goes, I can't even see the end of it. And let's just say that on this line of eternity, this red part here is our life. And let's just say it's 100 years. 100 years. Okay. Now get the picture. This is 100 years, and we look at this line that goes on forever. And here's the sad truth. For most of us in this room, all we are living for is a sliver on this line that we call our life. And this will end, and this will continue forever, forever. And I submit to you this morning, it is foolish for us to be living for anything else other than this kingdom. Right? I wonder what it would be like if God's people would be serious about him increasing and us decreasing? I wonder what it would be like if, if we really thought after we left this place that, you know what, I think I'm going to go ahead and try to build the kingdom of God. I'm going to do this. This will take forever because it's an eternal rope here, right? What would that look like if we left this place and said, God, by your grace, I'm tired of building my own kingdom. And so... Let me now think, as I leave this place, what it would look like in my life to be consumed with your kingdom and not building my own. 
Not having the spirit of Joab, of Abner, or the kid just saving his own skates. Lord, what if at the place you put me in my career, at my place of work, the guy or the girl I rub shoulders with, I understand that I'm here for your kingdom. And as I interact with them, it is my job to show them the example of Christ and the king that we have and how we are different than them. What if that would happen? What if the money that I made, I would say, God, thank you for providing for me. And thank you for taking the needs of others. So, Lord, now, with what I have left, how can I help your people? How can I further your kingdom? How can I invest in eternity, Lord? Because that's what matters. What if we left here thinking about the kingdom when it came to our neighbors? And instead of being irate with them because they parked an inch on our driveway, or in my neighborhood, came in our house without knocking and made it halfway up the stairs. Great part of town over here, right? We get, we're thinking about, oh my goodness, they drive me crazy. We think how we can get them back and ruin their lives. If I thought, wait a minute, how can I approach my neighbor and love them like Christ and show them the kingdom and be salt and light to them? What about this conflict or this argument I'm in right now? Am I playing just to win at any cost? Or is God teaching me something about this? Are my words reflective of a kingdom follower or builder? Or am I always complaining and griping about everything? What if in our suffering, we realize that God has a purpose and a plan, and he uses even suffering to build his kingdom? By the way, Christian, you're going to suffer. Non-Christian, you're going to suffer. We live in a sin-cursed world. But what if through my suffering I say, God, I don't know, I don't understand, I don't even like it. But you have a purpose. You have a plan. Use this in my life to build your kingdom. I wonder what happened. I wonder how our homes would be different. I wonder how our places of work would be different. How our neighborhoods, our community, our church would be different. And so I guess the question this morning that I would just like to leave you with in light of 2 Samuel chapter 3 is this. What are you doing? What am I doing for the kingdom? Or I've been so consumed building my own little kingdom that I've done nothing? Let me remind you once again as we close this morning. Revelation 11.15 tells us that all the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. And then the text in Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, reminds us that we've been redeemed, we've been purchased. He has paid the price for us, not so we just glory in salvation and do what we want to do, but to build his kingdom, to make him famous, to make his name a name of renown throughout the world. And then he says this great truth, that he has made us unto God kings and queens and priests to rule and reign with him. Christian, open your eyes. Quit building our own kingdom. And by God's grace, let us focus on the kingdom of Christ because it is the only thing that is eternal. Let's have a word of prayer this morning.